And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Oh, we've had a bit of a break here on EDD. You know, uh, I've, I've said this before, and Lord knows I'll say it again. You know when a podcaster is lying, when you can see their lips moving, but, you know, it's kind of a relative joke, I guess. Uh, some things have come up in, you know, between work and personal life, and unfortunately the podcast got pushed to the back burner. I'm sorry about that. Hopefully that uh, the episode today will be a good one and will make up for any inconvenience that that delay may have caused for you. And I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode, where we took a look at Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie with my good friend, hair metal hero Chris Tyler. A lot of fun revisiting that film. And uh, what's very funny is that after, uh, or right around the time of doing that show, I got my kids to watch that movie, and they loved it. They absolutely fell in love with the old old school Power Rangers and are champing at the bit to watch uh, Power Rangers on uh, DVD now at the house. But uh, uh, we're not covering Power Rangers today. We are going to be taking a look at a seminal uh, classic Showa Daikaiju film. We're going to be taking a look at Godzilla vs. Monster Zero, uh, one of the absolute greatest of the genre and a personal favorite for a long time. We've also got the next issue, issue number 10, of the Marvel Comics Godzilla series, the continuing four-color adventures of the King of Monsters. But before we get into that, we're going to get into just a little bit of news. Now, uh, Kong Skull Island has been released on home media as of July 18th. Amazon has it up on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital combo pack at $24.99. You can find similar pricing elsewhere online. This is uh, definitely worth picking up. I mean, the Blu-ray looks fantastic. And it's such a good movie. Go back and listen to my Gaiden if uh, if you missed that. Or go listen to my brother and my father discussing it over on Bots, Bugs, and Babes. They really go in depth. And um, spoilers, at some point you may hear my brother, myself, and the producer Paul Spataro discussing that film um, sometime in the undefined future over on Is It Jaws. So look forward to that. So that is out. Also, just released as I'm recording this, is the... Um, Home media on the U.S. release for Shin Godzilla. Now, this came out on August the 1st, and again, Amazon has it up on Blu-ray DVD Digital at $24.99. That would make a great double feature between uh, Skull Island and uh, Shin Godzilla. Very much looking forward to re-watching this one. Obviously saw it in the theater. Again, please go check out my Gaiden episode about Shin Godzilla uh, if you missed that one. But uh, just really great to see this officially getting released here in the States by Funimation and uh, that we won't have to worry about getting one from Malaysia or otherwise importing the disc. We're getting a, uh, you know, a, a Region A slash 1 release here in the United States, so definitely go check those out. Speaking of modern monster movies, shooting has begun for Godzilla King of the Monsters, the second uh, in the legendary Godzilla series and the third in the Monsterverse series. Uh, March of 2019 is when that is due in theaters. We don't have any real information at this point, but we do have lots and lots of Monsterverse teasers 
being leaked by Legendary regarding the new monsters. Uh, we're getting information about, um, you know, a three-headed demon being found frozen under the ice in the Arctic and uh, things like that. So keep an eye out for that. If you go to Legendary's Twitter, that's where they've been putting a lot of this stuff. Also, if you followed Kongskull Island on any social media, you'll probably be able to, to find them there as well. Very neat stuff. Very intrigued about the buildup for this and where this is all going. So keep an eye out for more information on that. And also speaking about modern Daikaiju movies, the teaser for Pacific Rim Uprising debuted at Comic-Con International in San Diego last month. This is due in theaters on February 23rd, 2018. The teaser is just that. It is a teaser. It focuses exclusively on the Jaegers, and we get some sneak peeks at the next generation of Jaegers. The basic plot, as it's been described, is that this is 10 years after uh, the, the end of Pacific Rim, and the Jaegers are now kind of the, you know, premier defense force once again in the world when the kaiju threat re-emerges, and they have to go recruit new pilots, so looks very cool. I'm very excited for that. I was, you know, I had said back when Pacific Rim came out that I really hope they get the sequel made, and I'm very, very excited to see the sequel to Pacific Rim, because Pacific Rim is just such a great great movie and such a great original property even though it is an homage to so many super robot properties that came before it it's such an it's an original property and that's such a rarity nowadays in the day and age we live in with sequels and remakes and whatnot so very very excited uh on to the small screen ultraman jeed the newest ultraman series has begun simulcast on crunchyroll here in the united states the series stars jeed who is the son of the evil ultra known as belial now, speaking of Belial, the three Ultraman Zero movies, which are Ultra Galaxy, Mega Monster Battle the Movie, The Revenge of Belial, and Ultraman Saga, um, the first one, uh, first one of which introduced us to both Zero and Belial, they are getting uh, new English dubs via William Winkler Productions. This is very similar to what was done to the X and Ginga S movies last year, which eventually got limited theatrical release. Now, no word on a limited theatrical release for these three movies, but I have seen all three of these. You'll remember um, we covered Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle the movie with Derek Crabb of the Fan Holes podcast. All three of these are a lot of fun. I have the Malaysian DVDs, which have English subtitles, but very, very cool to see these getting, Amer getting English dubs, and hopefully they will get theatrical releases, even in a limited format as well. Now, if you have any news related to giant monsters, giant heroes, anything that you think fits here on Earth Destruction Directive, please go ahead and send it in, Directive at yahoo.com, and we will pass it along to you here. Now, I am going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will get right into it with Godzilla vs. Monster Zero. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Man of Screen podcast. I... Wait, what are you doing? What is going on over there? What are you doing with those DVDs over there? I just bought those. No. I just moved here. I'm not actually moving again. Just the show is moving. So put those DVDs back down. Those are my New, new Adventures of Superman DVDs that I just bought for the next leg of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, just, just leave them right there. Where am I moving to? Physically, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be right here behind my microphone as I've always been. I'll just have a new web address. Two, two, three. 
The Man of Screen Podcast is moving to the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, where I will continue covering the adventures of Superman both on the small screen and the big screen, just from a new RSS feed. So point your favorite podcatcher at the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, www.twotruefreaks.com. Same show you've come to love, new location. Hurt and can't work? Call the law offices of Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein, 555-00-00. In a wreck and need a check? Call the law offices of Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein, 555-00-00. Malpractice? Malfeasance? Malodorous? Call the law offices of Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein, 555-00-00. Hola, amigos. I hadn't paid federal income taxes in a little over 10 years. Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein helped get me a clean slate, including a new identity. Now, I'm Joaquin Dos Caras Del Santo. Gracias, Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein. For all your legal and illegal needs, call the law offices of Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein, 555-00-00. Not licensed to practice law in any state or the District of Columbia. Turner, Conroy, and Finkelstein is a wholly owned subsidiary of Biscuit Basket Consolidated Brands Incorporated. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla vs. Monster Zero was released in Japan as Kaiju Dai Senso, translated as Great Monster War, in December of 1965. It was released in the United States as Invasion of Astro Monster some five years later in May 1970. Now, this was renamed Monster Zero for some releases and was eventually named Godzilla vs. Monster Zero on home video, which is how I was introduced to it. Now, Toho is back to using Invasion of Astro Monster as the official U.S. title. Our director is Inshiro Honda. Our writer is Shinichi Sekizawa. Music is by Akira Ifukube. Special effects are by Eji Subaraya. And our producer, as always, is Tomoyuki Tanaka. In the near future, two astronauts, Fuji and Glenn, are sent to investigate the surface of the mysterious Planet X in their rocket ship, P-1. There, they encounter advanced and seemingly benevolent human-like beings called the Exians and their leader, the Controller. The aliens usher the astronauts into their underground base, but moments later, the surface is attacked by by a creature that the Exians call Monster Zero, which the astronauts recognize as King Ghidorah. The monster eventually leaves, but the controller states that Ghidorah has been attacking repeatedly, forcing them to live underground in constant fear. He requests to borrow the Earth monsters Godzilla and Rodan to act as exterminators against King Ghidorah, in return for a super formula which can cure any disease. The astronauts return to Earth and deliver the message of friendship. Meanwhile, an inventor named Tetsuo, Terry in the U.S. version, has designed a personal alarm that emits an ear-splitting electronic siren. He sells it to a businesswoman named Namakawa, but she disappears before paying him. Tetsuo is romantically involved with Fuji's sister, Haruno, but Fuji disapproves and berates Tetsuo for getting scammed. Tetsuo eventually sees Namakawa with Glenn, who are hooking up, very, very nice, and later follows her but Tetsuo was captured and imprisoned by Exian spies. Glenn and Fuji begin to worry that the Exians may have ulterior motives. Their suspicions appear confirmed when three Exian spacecraft, UFO, appear in Japan. 
the controller apologizes for coming to Earth without permission, but saying they were only there to locate Godzilla and Rodan. Both of the monsters are sleeping, and the Exians use their technology to transport them to Planet X. They also bring Glenn, Fuji, and the scientist Sakurai with them. After a brief confrontation, the Earth monsters succeed in driving King Ghidorah away. Glenn and Fuji sneak away during the battle and encounter two Exian women, both of whom look identical to Miss Namikawa. Exian guards confront the astronauts and bring them back to the controller, who reprimands them but does not punish them. The astronauts are given a tape with instructions for the miracle cure and sent home, leaving Godzilla and Rodan behind. The tape is played for the world's leaders, but instead of a super formula, it contains an ultimatum, demanding that they surrender Earth to the Exians or be destroyed by Godzilla, Rodan, and King Ghidorah, who are under the aliens' control. Glenn storms into Miss Namakawa's office and finds her in her Exian garb. She admits that she is one of their spies, but confesses that she has fallen in love with him. Her commander arrives to arrest Glenn and executes Namakawa for letting emotion cloud her judgment, but not before she slips a note into Glenn's pocket. Glenn is conveniently taken to the same cell as Tetsuo. They read Miss Namakawa's note, which explains that the sound from Tetsuo's invention disrupts the Exian's electronics. Tetsuo has a prototype with him which he activates, weakening their captors and allowing them to escape. Sakurai and Fuji build a device to disrupt the Exian's control over the monsters. Glenn and Tetsuo arrive to share the Exian's weakness. As the monsters attack, Sakurai's device is activated and the sound from Tetsuo's alarm is broadcast over the radio. The invasion is thwarted and the Exians, unable to fight back or retreat, are destroyed. The monsters awaken from their trance, and of course, a fight ensues. Rodan eventually grabs Godzilla by the shoulders and uses him as a battering ram, sending all three monsters tumbling into the sea below. King Ghidorah flies away, while those watching speculate that Godzilla and Rodan are probably still alive. Sakurai states that he wants to send Glenn and Fuji back to Planet X to be ambassadors, and the day is saved. Alright, this is one of my, as I said, all-time favorites ever since I was a kid. This is just a classic of the uh, Daikaiju genre and just a, a really, really good entertaining film. Um, I, I, you know, I'm going to gush about this. I'm going to warn you guys up front because this is, like I said, a personal favorite of mine. So let's go ahead and get right into the notes. First off, if you are a Toho fan, there are lots of familiar faces here. Akira Takarada, who plays Fuji, he was Ogata way back in Godzilla. Plus, he appeared in Mothra vs. Godzilla, which was Godzilla 1964. He also goes on to appear in Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster and King Kong Escapes, and then would come back in Godzilla vs. Mothra 92. Now, his co-star um, and fellow astronaut Nick Adams, who plays Glenn, he was in Frankenstein Conquers the World and also appeared in several um, you know, films and TV shows in the U.S. and is very recognizable. Now, Nick Adams was rumored to be having an affair with Kumi Mizuno, who plays Miss Namikawa. Now, Kumi Mizuno was one of Toho's um, you know, st um, starlets, and she was... Also in Frankenstein Conquers the World with Nick Adams, plus she also did Matango, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, War of the Gargantuas, and was the Prime Minister in Godzilla x Mechagodzilla. Now Akira Kubo, who plays Tetsuo, as I said his name was Terry in the US version, he was also in Matango, plus he was in Son of Godzilla, Destroy All Monsters, Yogg, also known as Space Amoeba, and then came back in the 90s in the um, non-Toho film Gamera Garden of the Universe. And then... 
Jun Tazaki, who plays Sakurai, he was in King Kong vs. Godzilla, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Frankenstein Conquers the World, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, War of the Gargantuas, Destroy All Monsters, plus he was also on Ultra Q, Jumborg Ace, and Kamen Rider X. <sighs> so... You know, you, you see these familiar faces crop up a lot, and when you're a kid, you just kind of recognize them as, oh, I know that face. You know, you don't put necessarily two and two together. When you get older, you start realizing that, yeah, Toho used a lot of the same contract players over and over in their films, which is why they, you know, uh, became so familiar to viewers of these films. So very cool to see lots of familiar faces uh, in this film. Now, Planet X is hidden on the dark side of Jupiter. And that's why they've never seen it, because it's such a small planet relative to Jupiter. And, and Planet X is a, uh, a rocky planet. It's not a gas giant like a lot of the outer planets. Now, the thing that I remember reading as a kid in a book somewhere that wouldn't be, have been able to figure out where Planet X was due to the gravitational uh, effects of having another planet there. Now, I'm not an, an, an astronomer. I don't know the details of that, but I guess that kind of makes sense. But, you know, it's, it's, we're willing to accept this. It's, it's a hidden planet. That's fine. I, I don't need to worry about the, the science behind it. We know it's planet X, and it's got aliens, and apparently a somewhat breathable atmosphere. So, um, Tetsuo's Lady Guard, which is actually not named in the U.S. dub. The name comes out of the original Japanese. It has a crazy sound, an absolutely insane sound. And he describes it later when he's talking to Glenn, because Glenn said, does this thing make a loud sound? He says, it'll shake your teeth loose. It is one of the most memorable, bizarre, ridiculous sounds in the entire uh, Daikaiju uh, genre, and I don't, and it's never been used again, which is not really surprising, considering how strange and unique the sound is. Uh, there's some really memorable dialogue for me in this, um, especially when Fuji and Glenn first land on Planet X, and they meet the Exians, uh, the controller. I am the controller of Planet X. It, it's such a memorable reading from the, the dubbed voice. And, um, you know, the, 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 the Japanese one, it, it's, you know, has a, a similar sort of very mechanical flat voice, but I'm so used to the U.S. dub that that's what it always sounds like. The other line I always love, follow the light. The light is your guide. And I still use that Anytime it comes up, where if we got to go and we're walking down a hallway and I can turn lights on and off, that's what I use all the time. So, just uh, really, those of, you know, from my childhood, I still always have kept those lines in my head. The Exians themselves are great. I mean, they have very, very striking and iconic uniforms. You know, the black and silver jumpsuits with the, uh, the little, uh, you know, kind of like Jordy. I always saw Jordy LaForge rip them off, having the things in front of their eyes, and the, uh, you know, skull caps with the little uh, antenna on top. And they're very mechanical in the way that they move, very precise, and you know, very. Um, there's not a lot of fluidity. It's very. Yeah, I mean that's not really the right word. It's not. It's not a natural sort of movement. It's an unnatural sort of movement, and it really plays up their alien nature very well, and I like it a lot. Um, we also get the great line when he is describing that the monster Zero was attacking. He said, everything is numbered here. The monster is Zero. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's just another alien idea, this idea that their society is ruled by computer instead of by uh, humans or by, you know, biological intellect, that everything is numbered. You know, we get later that they say they would like to borrow Monster Zero 1 and Monster Zero 2. Which is, again, I, I, that, that to me always put over the Exians as this computerized, you know, very rigid, very controlled society. And I think that's a great job done, not only in the original Japanese, but especially in the dub, uh, to put that over. 
back on Earth when the UFOs appear out of the water. Uh, we get the roiling water, of course, in the lake, because whenever there's roiling water, something's coming up. Typically it's a monster, but in this case, it is a UFO. So it's a little bit of a swerve, because you think it might be Godzilla the first time you watch it, because that's where they, uh, Godzilla is asleep, but it actually is the Exian UFO. Now, I really like the UFO design for the Exians. I know that Jack Vaughn and I have kind of gone back and forth about this design, and Jack thinks it's they're a little too bulbous, and they almost look like they're like a blow-up toy. But I've always liked them because they are, you know, traditional flying saucer shaped, but they're they're very um, they're rounded a lot. They don't have like the, the the more hard angles that I'm thinking kind of like the edges of the UFOs from like Earth versus the flying saucers. They do have a bit of a kind of bulbous look to them. But what I really liked about them is always the way that they move. They move so smooth when they fly. You know, there's um, when when they're flying around, they look absolutely perfect as far as I'm concerned. It's really just moving very quickly. You can really see that it's alien technology at work. They're not. They look a lot different in flight than you know the typical uh, miniatures for jets or helicopters. And they have a great sound effect. This UFO sound effect. Which really helps again sell the illusion of the alien technology at use at uh, in use on them, and so I really like the UFOs. I'm a big fan of them. Now we also get in this sequence we get to see uh, some of their technology because not only do they use a tractor beam to pull Godzilla out of the lake and encasing him in a bubble, they also use a laser that they demolish the mountain that Rodan is sleeping in in order to pull him out and encapsulate him in a bubble. So, in addition to, again, some cool sound effects, we also get to see that they do have weapons on the ship, which is a nice touch and a bit of a, uh, a foreshadowing of what we're going to get later on in the film during the invasion. So I like that. They do, they show us that they have weapons on the UFOs. They don't tell us that. So I thought that was a, a real nice touch. Now, after the monsters are taken to Planet X, we get to see some more of their technology. They have trap doors built into the rock, because, of course, they live underground for the UFOs to land and unload their passengers. They also have a radar dish type of gun that dissolves the bubbles that were carrying Godzilla and Rodan. Now, this, of course, made me think of, of course, the Markalite cannon from the Mysterians, and then the atomic heat ray from Mothra. Um, both of which came before this. But again, same idea, the idea of a gun that looks kind of like a satellite dish. So I thought that was a very uh, neat little bit of uh, design consistency. Obviously, that idea of a dish, of a weapon that looked like a dish was uh, very popular uh, at the time and made its appearance several times in the Godzilla series. Now, the fight on Planet X is a bit of a, of a short fight, really. It's kind of just a tease. Godzilla uses a Luthez press. Anyone who is a fan of Stone Cold Steve Austin knows what a Luthez press is. He dives at directly at King Ghidorah, wrapping his arms and legs around him and tackling him to the ground. After the fight is done, Godzilla does the uh, what is com was commonly known for a while as the Highland Fling, which is his uh, happy dance, which I loved as a kid and still get a kick out of today. It is really, really silly to see Godzilla doing this dance where he hops up and puts one hand, what hand on his head and kicks the other leg up and then reverses and goes back and forth doing this. Uh, this apparently was a popular dance in Japan at the time, which is why Godzilla does it as a bit of a, a joke for the audience. It's A lot of people really turn their nose up at it. I think it's adorable and hilarious because, you know, I remember it from when I was a kid, so I'm probably more prone. Uh, the other big thing we get in this scene is we first see the Planet X girls in their uniforms, and of course they are all played by Kumi Mizuno, and they are all identical, wearing identical wigs and identical uniforms. Um, this is, if you like Kumi Mizuno, this is a, a good film for you because she's kind of all over it, and this is one of her, I said, most memorable looks. 
Um, it's one of those interesting situations where you've got a starlet who's completely covered except for her face. I mean, even gloves. And then even then, it's a high neckline at that, and she's got a wig on, and she just looks absolutely sexy as hell. Um, you know, it's that, that repressed look. It's the, and the, the, the very precise bob haircut, you know, that sci-fi bob-style uh, haircut. Uh, she, lo she looks great. And again, more uh, foreshadowing that the Exians are not on the up-and-up with us and are lying to us after, you know, they, you know, they, they, we, all their girls are identical and she looks exactly like Miss Namikawa. So you know something must be up at that point. Back on Earth, the um, formula for the super drug is, of course, on a reel-to-reel -reel tape because, despite the fact that, uh, you know, we're flying to other planets and working with aliens, it's still 1965. So that always is amusing because they say, well, it, it's the right, uh, you know, it, it follows the instructions, you know, they say, why the thing doesn't work. After the ultimatum, it's interesting, we get some scenes where uh, it's not shown, but it's implied that there is like this huge um, you know, protest worldwide that we should just surrender to the Exians and not be destroyed by their monster army and UFO fleet, which is interesting. You know, normally, especially in an American movie, you wouldn't expect that sort of um, that sort of sentiment. But in a Japanese film, I guess it makes more sense showing you know kind of an international perspective on it. Monster Zero is kind of interesting from the international perspective to begin with, because Henry G. Saperstein, who was uh, the producer who helped bring a lot of the earlier Toho films over to the U.S., had an active hand in developing this film with Toho, with the idea that this would be sold overseas, which is why it's even stranger that it took almost five years for the film to be to migrate from Japan to the United States. Saperstein was, you know, kind of responsible for some of the changes to the story formula, including getting the story started right away. One of the things I've always liked about this film is it opens right up with the astronauts and very quickly they are on the planet and things are happening. Um, so again, it's interesting to see that international idea or this idea that people elsewhere in the world might not want to fight the Exians, they might want to surrender. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting touch. We don't really see that uh, too many too many places in uh, the Daikaiju genre. Usually it's, you know, Earth will fight to the last man, which is Fuji's statement here. We'll fight to the last man, baby. You know, it's all very 60s from uh, Nick Adams there. Uh, but ultimately, the outside of this is that there's, you know, uh, he finds Miss Namakawa, and so she professes her love and says that she's rebelled against her programming, even though, you know, uh, that even though X is a computer-controlled society. And then the Earth Commander shows up and vaporizes her with his ray gun. Now... Women don't always get the best treatment in the uh, in the Daikaiju films. Now they, you know, there's kind of a back and forth about how they're portrayed. Namakawa is kind of an interesting example because she is one of many fairly well-written female characters who just happen to be evil, and uh, you know, but she kind of goes from the side of the devil to the side of the angel, so that's okay. But the idea that you know the out have to be an alien in order to step outside of the established gender roles is kind of a, a forward-thinking thing from Toho, especially considering the, even as, um, you know, traditional or uh, a progressive might say repressed, the role of women in the mid-1960s in the United States, it was that much more pronounced in Asia and especially in Japan. So having the females be uh, playing an alien allows them to step outside of that and do things that they might normally not be allowed to do uh, because they are taking away the Earth culture and the specific Asian culture that would be surrounding a character that they might be playing if they were a human. Haruno, for instance, is you know very deferential to her brother, even though she loves Tetsuo, you know, she still has to get Fuji's approval and all that, so she's a much more traditional character than Miss Namikawa.
As part of the invasion, the Exians destroy the P-1, which I think is a nice touch, since the P-1 is shown to be able to fly back and forth to Planet X with ease. Uh, they also melt the satellite dish at the space base, which is um, a great, great shot. It's It looks kind of like, um, it's like an electrical-type beam, and it goes around in a circle, around and around the dish, and it melts it, very similar to the way that we would see tanks being melted by Godzilla's atomic breath, except they just heat it up, and heat it up, and heat it up, and it just kind of collapses on itself in, like, molten slag. It's a great, I mean, it's again, it's a short little shot, maybe five, ten seconds, but it's really memorable, and I always like that one because it looks like they really are melting this giant satellite dish when really they're just melting a little miniature version of the satellite dish. One of the weapons which is deployed is the A-Cycle Light Ray. This was a one I loved as a kid and still like. This continues, again, on the path uh, towards what we eventually get the Mazer tank. This one kind of splitting the difference between the atomic heat ray gun from uh, Mothra and the Mazer tank. Um, this one, it doesn't have the big conical dish. It's got kind of, it looks almost like uh, like a tripod sticking out of the end, but otherwise very similar to the Mazer tank. You know, kind of a half-track uh, vehicle with the big weapon in the back, so uh, very nice to see. A lot of people actually confuse this for a Mazer tank, but they specifically refer to it as the A-Cycle light ray machine. Now, I mentioned in the synopsis that before she is killed, Miss Namakawa slips a note to Fuji. And then we later, when Fuji is in the cell with Tetsuo, we get to see him read the note. Now, in the Japanese one, this is a Japanese-written note that he reads. Now, there is an insert shot in the U.S. version showing an English-written note. This was not the only time this would be done in the Toho film. A similar scene is done in the uh, the film The H-Man, which we will cover eventually. It's not a giant monster film, but it'll be a guide at some point. It's what we call a, um, air quotes up to the microphone, mutant film with a human-sized monster. But I think it's a real nice touch to have the insert shot there so that the scene plays the same way in the Japanese version and the English version without throwing a huge block of Japanese text on the screen for an English audience. So I thought that was a, a real nice touch. The invasion itself is a personal favorite uh, sequence of mine where, you know, the, the aliens decide that they've given the Earth enough time and they haven't surrendered, so they are going to invade. And there's a lot of stock footage in this. There's some stock footage from uh, Ghidorah, there's stock footage from Rodan. Um, but there's some new footage mixed in there, too. A lot of the most memorable footage involves Godzilla's feet as we get kind of, you know, ground-level views of Godzilla's feet crashing through buildings. In fact, there was even more of this that was shot that ended up on the cutting room floor. It's an interesting perspective. You don't see it. Usually they're, you know, shooting upwards at the forced perspective to show Godzilla's top as he goes through the building. This, I thought, was a kind of an interesting angle. Uh, the other thing that's nice is that the UFOs get involved. As I said, they attack the space base. And they, um, you know, do attack buildings. So they're flying around. So they've shown us their laser beam weapons earlier on, and now they're using them. So I thought that was a nice touch, and it really is a full-scale invasion. Um, two things to note. First off, we are told, but unfortunately not shown, that King Ghidorah is attacking the United States. Now, we would not see a Toho monster attacking the United States until Destroy All Monsters, but, man, that would have been cool to see. That. Just a, a few a few shots of King Ghidorah attacking New York or something would have been a real hoot. So, unfortunately, that doesn't uh, happen. This never bothered me as a kid. Now, it's kind of, to me, it's like, oh, man, that would have been neat, more so than any real complaint. 
The other part of this is this is the first instance that we hear the, the appropriately named Monster Zero March. And this is a very well-known and well-beloved piece of music by Akira Ifukube. Uh, appears over and over in the series after this. This builds on the marches that he had done earlier in the series, especially in uh, the original Godzilla. And it's, like I said, this great, great piece of music and really well-recognized and well-known as uh, Godzilla music. And you hear this, uh, either this or, you know, somebody doing a fake version of it crop up sometimes on shows when they're doing, like, a Godzilla parody or something like that. So just great to hear the Monster Zero march. Always brings a smile to my face, especially here in Monster Zero. Now, after the broadcast of the sound, the Exian ships go out of control, and their death throes go on for, uh, you know, a little while here as we see them trying desperately to avoid the sound, and it drives them all crazy to the point that their ship, ex their, their flagship, their main ship, the controller ship, explodes. I always wondered if this was them going crazy and destroying the ship themselves, or if it was that their computer overloaded and it caused a systems failure and they blew up. I never quite, it's never explained, I guess you can go either way, but um, the controller rants and raves as he's going down that they shall escape into time itself, but since we never saw the Exians again in the Showa uh, series, I guess whatever plan he had didn't work before they got blowed up. This leads to the final fight uh, between the monsters, Godzilla and Rodan versus King Ghidorah on a mountaintop. This fight is also fairly short. Uh, this movie is much more of a space opera than a monster fight movie, but it's it's a very rewarding fight. It's not nearly as long or as uh, intricate as the fight at the end of Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, but it's, it's still a lot of fun. Godzilla uses some real fancy footwork in this fight as he throws punches at King Ghidorah, clearly emulating a boxer, uh, part of the overall visual softening and more kidification, if you will, of Godzilla as the series moved into uh, the mid-60s and beyond. Uh, it, it, it makes me smile to see him do it, but I know a lot of people don't care for it, but again, I, that's to me, it's, it's just, it's always been that way, and I'm, I'm okay with it. Rodan uses a battering ram attack at one point, crashing his whole body into King Ghidorah. I always like this out of Rodan because, you know, he doesn't have a beam, uh, or even silk like Mothra, so he's got to use everything at his disposal. One of his greatest assets is his airspeed. So by building up a huge head of uh, steam behind him, um, with his air flying in the air, he can crash into another monster, and it looks really cool. Now, the, the final attack here is one that, to me, is one of the most iconic, and I use that word a lot, but this film is very iconic as far as I'm concerned, and memorable uh, finishes ever in a Daikaiju movie, where Rodan picks up Godzilla... And it's an aerial, like an airlift body attack. It is battering rams, him and Godzilla, straight into King Ghidorah. They tumble over the side and crash down into the water, not too dissimilar to what happens at the end of King Kong vs. Godzilla. Now, the outcome after that is fairly ambiguous because King Ghidorah immediately jumps out of the water and flies away because we all know King Ghidorah will run away from a fight if it's not going his way. Now... Godzilla, of course, lives underwater, so I don't expect him to surface. But the question always was, well, what about Rodan? See, to me, as a kid, this never bothered me, because we see Rodan dive under the water and stay there in Rodan. So obviously he has at least some amphibious qualities as well. So to me, it was always, okay, Godzilla and Rodan just staying under the water right now to lick their wounds, and King Ghidorah retreating back to, to the depths of space. Not to be seen again ever, except whenever he comes back <laughs> in Destroy All Monsters, and then Godzilla vs. Gigan, and then in Zone Fighter. But, you know, that as it is. The, the ending is always one of my favorites, and uh, again, even though it's a relatively short fight, it's very satisfying. Because we do get a fair amount of monster um, invasion, monster destruction, leading up to it, so always like that one. 
this is one of the all-time classics of the genre for a reason. It's a great mix of alien invasion space opera and monster movie, um, even if the monsters do end up taking a backseat to the science fiction uh, for the majority of the running time. This one jockeys uh, for the position of favorite. This one jockeys for the position of the favorite of the series in my brain, along with its immediate predecessor, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, which we covered way back on Episode 2 of Earth Destruction Directive. It's got classic imagery, a great Ifukube soundtrack. The effects are well done, even though the budgets have started to go on the downward trend. Uh, and it's just an absolutely rollicking storyline. This might have been what some consider, and most people consider, the beginning of the end of the Golden Age of Daikaiju, but, you know, it remains one heck of a way to start declining, as far as I'm concerned. This is a legit classic and very glad I had the chance to check it out again for the show. Now, Sony Classics Media had released this on DVD with both the U.S. and English versions, and for a while, it was very cheap and easy to find. I want to say I got mine for less than 10 bucks off of Amazon. However, now it is out of print and goes for about $50 on Amazon, so that is unfortunate. Now, there is the Godzilla Collection boxed set, which you can also find on Amazon, and that has, along with this film, has Godzilla King of the Monsters, Godzilla Raids Again, Godzilla vs. The Thing, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and the Terror of Mechagodzilla, and it goes for about 30 bucks, which is really one heck of a deal when you get down to it. Some of the absolute best of the Showa era all in one package for 30 bucks. You can't really beat that. So if you want a physical copy of it, that is what I would recommend, because it's either that or going to the secondary market. Now, you can also stream it online um, on YouTube, on Amazon Video, and on Google Play. Now, these are usually between 3 and $5, depending on the service. And Amazon also has a digital copy you can download if you'd prefer to do that. Unfortunately, right now, there are no plans that I'm aware of for a Blu-ray release or a DVD re-release here in the States. So, if you don't have it already, check out that collection set, or you can always hope to find a good price for it on eBay, and just keep your eyes peeled. Alright, I really, really enjoyed uh, watching getting a chance to talk to you guys about Monster Zero. What do you guys think? Uh, has anybody out there watched this one? Is this one a favorite? Is this one one you didn't care for? Please send in feedback. I'd love to hear the listeners' thoughts on this one. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. And let's keep the conversation going about one of my all-time favorites. Alright, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. We are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number 10 from Marvel Comics Group was cover dated May 1978 and was released on or about February 2nd, 1978 with a hat tip to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com for the information. 
Our cover artist for this issue is Mr. Herb Trimpey. The writer is Doug Mensch. The penciler is Herb Trimpey. Inker is Fred Keita. Letterer is John Costanza. Our colorist, Mary Titus. The editor, Archie Goodwin. And the title is Godzilla vs. Yetragar. And our synopsis was adapted from marvel.wikia.com. The S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier behemoth follows the trail of Godzilla from Las Vegas to the Grand Canyon in Arizona. They finally locate Godzilla, but when they do, they also witness the gigantic Bigfoot known as Yetragar. Three months previously, the aforementioned underground nuclear test is conducted by the U.S. Department of Defense, but yields some unforeseen side effects. The radiation from the test is channeled into an underground rift, a subterranean passage stretching from Arizona to Alberta, Canada. In Alberta, the radiation comes to fill an ice cave within which a hairy, near-human creature is encased in a glacial tomb, one of the legendary Sasquatch. The Sasquatch is freed from the ice by the radioactivity and revived. The newly revived monster is pained by the continuing effects of the radiation on his body. His mind filled with rage, the Bigfoot turns south towards where he instinctively senses the source of his affliction originates. As he strides southward, however, the radiation begins to make the monster grow. Back in the present, Yetragar hurls a huge boulder at Behemoth, taking S.H.I.E.L.D. out of the action. Meanwhile, Red Ronin is being secured at a separate S.H.I.E.L.D. facility, but Rob Takaguchi takes advantage of Jimmy Woo and Tamara making lovey-dovey eyes at each other, sneaks past the guards, and gains access to Red Ronin. He scrambles the machine, wrecking a few buildings in the process, and sets out to once again find Godzilla. Back at the Grand Canyon, Yetragar ambushes Godzilla at the rim, causing both monsters to topple into the natural wonder, sending a team rafting on the Colorado River, scrambling for safety. The fall does not give them pause, however, and they continue clawing and biting one another, effectively cutting off the rafters from the rest of their party. Godzilla blasts Yetragar with his atomic breath, but Yetragar deflects it with a giant boulder. Godzilla maintains the upper hand, though, as he batters Yetragar with his tail, then chomps down on his arm. Yetragar frees his arm and then punches Godzilla across the snout. The battle soon escalates when Red Ronin, with Rob Takaguchi inside, arrives to prevent the monsters from killing each other. Next issue, the epic battle of three giant gladiators in the only arena that could ever do them justice, the Grand Canyon. Godzilla, Yetragar, and Red Ronin, plus the parallel struggle of four hapless humans in Titan Times 3. This was kind of an interesting issue of Godzilla because there was a lot I liked in it, but there was also some really frustrating parts of it. So overall, kind of a mixed bag, although I, I tend to lean more positive on it. Um, uh, of, of note, this is one of the issues that I don't have in um, as, as, a, as an individual comic, so I was reading this from Essential Godzilla, so I don't have any comments really on the color or on any advertisements. But let's get right into the notes. Our cover is, as the name of the story implies, Godzilla vs. Yetragar. It's a dynamic, really energetic cover, uh, as is Trimpy's want to do with these. And on Shogun Warriors, he uses the small human-sized uh, figures for scale, as we see them scrambling away from the two monsters battling each other. 
Uh, I like the monsters really just crushing the scenery around them. It's like the, the rocks and everything around them are also feeling the brunt of the impact of this fight that they're having. It's very, very nice. A monster versus monster cover always appeals to me as a Daikaiju fan. So when you've got a story literally called Godzilla versus Yetrigar, going with this route is really the only way to do it as far as I'm concerned. The cover copy is also nice. His mightiest challenge ever. And Yetrigar does put up quite a fight for Godzilla, certainly more so than Dr. Demonicus's monsters did previously. So I think it's a little truth in advertising there with the cover. Uh, page one, uh, this is very similar to the cover. Um, this is a good, you know, a very Silver Age sort of splash page. It's the alternate cover. We see this a lot, especially with DC, but you'd see it with Marvel sometimes too, where the first splash page was sort of a alternate cover, um, you know, for the for the story. Uh, this one, the locale is more specifically the Grand Canyon. It's very clear that it's, you know, not just a, a more... The cover is a bit more generic in the setting, where here it's pretty obvious that it's supposed to be the Grand Canyon. Now, they have the names of the, um, the credits listed on the rock over on the right-hand side. They don't line up. So, like, it says writer, Doug Mensch, and, Pen and Art Herb Trimpey, but they're, they're kind of uneven. So it's almost as if it looks like, you know, the, they're saying that the writer was Herb Trimpey and Doug Mensch is just kind of floating out in space. I don't know if that was, you know, just trying to look asymmetrical or what. So it's a little confusing to read. Pages uh, 3 and 4, this uh, flashback gives us a good quick intro of Yetrigar. And what this flashback does is it relies on the familiar material to streamline introducing a brand new character who we've never seen before. You know, we all know what a Yeti or a Sasquatch is, and we're reading a Godzilla book, we know that radiation causes monsters. So by using these kind of familiar generic elements, we can very quickly establish Yetrigar as a giant um uh, Yeti monster. And there, there's some, of course, some precedent for Yeti or Bigfoot-style monsters in Daikaiju. You know, uh, Frankenstein from Frankenstein Conquers the World, along with much, uh, which is probably the best example, which is War of the Gargantua. Sanda and Gyra are very specifically Yeti monsters, um, to the point that in uh, what is it? It's Godzilla X Mechagodzilla in the English dub. They specifically refer to Gyra as Bigfoot Gyra, which is kind of an interesting, interesting touch. And, uh, you know, we see all, like the monster Itholite from King of the Monsters 2, another good example. And I like this because with monsters based on Yeti or Bigfoots, you know, there's the idea that they are humanoid and they can, you can pick up those humanoid aspects of them. You can, you can play with their intelligence. You can make them sympathetic. You can make them more inhuman. You've got a lot of ways to go with it. And so I'm glad to see that the trope getting trotted out here is I think it's a good one to use here in the comic. Turning over to page 7, Yetrigar throws a giant boulder at the behemoth. For all the world, this scene looks like the classic Aurora Lost in Space model kit, which has the giant space cyclops throwing a boulder at the at the Robinson family, where they're down in the below in the space chariot, and he's up above holding the rock above his head. I mean, this, this is where my mind goes sometimes. I mean, I've, I've never built that kit. I always thought it was pretty neat. Uh, but I've, I've never, I've never, unfortunately, never had an opportunity to build it. Behemoth, for what it's worth, goes down again. This thing gets knocked around a lot. I know it's a kind of a modernist thing to have the helicarrier get beaten up and destroyed and crash, but it seems to go take a lot of damage over the course of the first ten issues of this series, and I think that's only going to continue as we go forward because, you know, you can't have them have Godzilla fighting the Behemoth every issue, I guess. So. Page ten, F and Rob Takaguchi. Ugh. I mean, 
and and this is just as much on Wu and Tamara as it is on Rob because it's like, you know, you're you're purposefully telling him that he can't. He's going to be, you know, Red Ronin's being secured, and you can't go do this. And then you turn around and just let him wander off. Ugh, that this character is really starting to grate on my nerves. And the fact that apparently we're still using him is is not does not bode well for the next couple of stories, as far as I'm concerned. If we're going to have to deal more with Rob Takaguchi, he's just understand he's supposed to be an audience identification kid identification character, but he is he is very very poorly written and very grating as a character. And the uh, fact that S.H.I.E.L.D. lets him, you know, repeatedly just, just get in control of this machine is is frustrating as a reader because it's like, ugh, it, it, it doesn't do anything for me at all. Uh, page 12, we get a second splash page. And normally you'd say a second splash page, okay, they're just trying to fill up space, and that may have been part of it, but it's Godzilla versus Yetragar at the Grand Canyon. I mean, that is suitably epic to deserve its own splash page, and Trippy does a great job with this. It does fantastic splash page setting up this clash of the two monsters. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm not a big fan of having two splash pages, but this one, this scene deserves a splash page, and I'm glad that it got it. Pages 13 through 16 is the Godzilla and Yetrigar battle. It's very savage, very back and forth. And what I like is that um, Mench and Trimpy, uh, you know, play this to their strengths, to the individual monster's strengths. It's the classic reptile versus mammal conflict, you know, kind of like King Kong and Godzilla or Frankenstein and Baragon. You know, you've got the, the, the more humanoid and the less humanoid clashing together. You know, Godzilla bites Yetrigar using his natural, um, you know, weapons that he has, being a reptile. But then Yetrigar uses a rock. So he uses a tool because he's a humanoid monster. So he's going to use a tool because he has a higher degree of intelligence than a reptilian monster would. You know, Godzilla uses his tail to do a tail chop, again, using his natural physical abilities. But then uh, Yetrigar uses his hands because, again, as a humanoid monster, he has opposable thumbs. So he can grab and he can grasp and he can manipulate with his hands. So I like that. They're, they're doing, um, you know, uh, really playing up the idea that these are two different types of monsters and giving them real, you know, kind of differentiating how they're fighting with each other. Also, Yetrigar takes a couple of blasts of atomic breath right to his chest. And manages to stay standing. So, um, again, the creative team putting him over as being tough. If he's tough enough to stand up to Godzilla's atomic breath, that's that's pretty tough in a in the monster world, you know, in my book. So, uh, finally, page seventeen, the arrival of Red Ronin. This time, that is is really a shame. I was hoping for more of these two monsters wailing on each other in a one-on-one scenario, and then introducing the Red Ronin. I mean, I guess we'll see what the next issue brings as far as that, but. You know, I was real. I really enjoyed the fight sequence here, and I, I wish we could get more of it. So, in, in you know, kind of introducing Red Ronin into the conflict at this point does a disservice to the really good work as far as actually showing Godzilla versus Yetrigar, as the title of the story you know is, is implies. Overall, a, a good issue. Uh, ultimately, though, it's kind of quick, only being seventeen story pages, and it really it's unfulfilling. I, I want a full-on Godzilla versus Yetrigar, not a three-way dance. You know, not not yet, anyway. I'm okay with introducing Red Ronin, but really give these guys some space to expand on. They only get, you know, four pages of a only 17-page book. So I would have liked to have seen more of Godzilla fighting Yetrigar. 
Uh, Rob Takaguchi, quite frankly, he's driving me insane. He, he cannot be written out of this book fast enough as far as I'm concerned. And having him steal the Red Ronin once again just, ugh, just just bothers me on on a really kind of fundamental level it bothers me and, and I, I i see no redeeming qualities for this character i'm hoping i'm going to be wrong that i'm going to be surprised the next issue rob takaguchi is going to have his shining moment and all this stuff leading up to it will be worth it but i don't know that it's going to happen uh, again there's nearly nothing much for shield to do here except be secondary to the story and passively follow behind godzilla i mean understanding that they are one of some of our main characters but you know, there's not much for them to do. Now, again, I just said I wanted Godzilla and Yetchigar to have more spotlight, but maybe don't have S.H.I.E.L.D. in this story then. You know, just have them say, like, oh, we're falling behind, we'll catch up to them, but they're there, but they don't accomplish anything. So we take up some time to, you know, in, you know show what Gabe and Duggan are up to, but then they don't impact the story in any way. So that is a little frustrating also. All those things being said, this is a fun read. Uh, we get the introduction of Yetrigar and the battle between Godzilla and Yetrigar, including setting it at the Grand Canyon, which is fantastic. I've said over and over of the of having this be set in the United States and having Godzilla stomp through, you know, settings in the United States and locales, which he would never be able to set foot in in a Toho movie. And having a monster fight the Grand Canyon, it's fantastic. I love it. So that alone builds so much goodwill with me for this story that I have a hard time being real negative on it because that is, that is so good. Uh, but really, ultimately, this should have been so much better and could have been so much better. So I said a good issue, but, you know, one that left me wanting, wanting more of it. So hopefully the conclusion will fulfill uh, what I'm looking for and really make this a good, meaty, uh, monster comic story. Uh, as always, this is collected in Essential Godzilla. You can hopefully find that at your local comic shop or online and check out this story. Um, as I said, I don't have the physical issue of this, so no letters or ads to go over today. So just a comic for right now. So we are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to wrap up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, listener feedback. And if you would like to send some listener feedback to Earth Destruction Directive, you can contact me via email at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Also, have some other ways you can get in touch with me. They are all in the outro to the show. So let's get right into it. Our first email today comes from Rich S. and is entitled Tokyo in Trouble. 
He says, uh, hey, Luke, I just finished the latest EDD podcast and loved it. Thank you for the kind words, Rich. Rich continues, keep up the good work, especially the Marvel Comics coverage. I'm sending along a copy of a picture I did about a year ago, uh, about a year and a half ago, excuse me, that wound up as the back cover of G-Fan. Thought you might enjoy it. Best wishes, Rich S. That is cool that it ended up in G-Fan. Excellent. I've never had... When I was in high school, I had um, one article that I that I wrote, a review of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie, published in an old fanzine called um, the Kaiju Review. But that was the only... Th- I've never had any artwork or anything in G-Fan, so that's very cool. Now, I will put this picture up on the, uh, when I post the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when I post the episode, I will put this picture up on the Facebook post so y'all can see it. it. It's it's Godzilla and Ultraman and Flying Robo, you know, uh, the Flying Robot from Johnny Sacco and his Flying Robot, and they are fighting Final Wars Gigan, King Ghidorah, and Alien Balton. And then there's a girl uh, taking a selfie with all the monsters in the background, and we see a, a Gundam and an Optimus Prime, who I'm guessing if this is Japan, is probably Convoy, right? It's probably the Japanese Optimus Prime. Um, toys also there, and it's done all in kind of a, a CG style. Very, very cool, Rich. I like this a lot. Thank you for sending this along. I'm Congrats on getting into G-Fan. That alone is, is uh, some awesome uh, monster fan cred right there, as far as I'm concerned. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. So uh, thank you very much for this, and like I said, I will I will post this up. Our next email comes from Joseph Rad. I, Joe, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce your last name, but I know you go by Joey Rad on Facebook. So, uh, Joe, thank you for writing in. And his email is entitled simply, My G Tattoo. And Joe writes, here is my Godzilla tattoo. It is on my calf. It is attacking Philadelphia at night. Ha ha. City of brotherly love getting taken down a step. This is awesome. Uh, I am I am so blessed with my listeners between Rich sending me that cool picture and uh, Joe taking a picture of his leg here with Godzilla on it. This is also going to go on the Facebook group. This is very cool. I don't have any tattoos myself. My brother uh, has has tattoos and he's a little bit more into that scene than I am. But this is awesome. This is so cool. This reminds me that I always wanted a little super deformed Gigan as a tattoo. Um, maybe I'll if I can find that image I'll post. But I will definitely post this. This is really cool. Uh, I'm I'm so so impressed by this, Joe. This is this is great stuff. Thank you very much for sending that in, and hope you're still enjoying the show. All right, our final email this time out is from a friend of the show, an all-around cool guy, Jack Bond. Jack, of course, got name-checked a little bit earlier in the episode, and I'm sure he will have something to say about the Exians uh, UFOs at uh, after this episode goes live. And Jack writes, when the red, red, Ronan comes, boo-boo, nah, better not. Uh, Jack writes, you've mentioned folks somehow knew a giant robot of some sort fought Godzilla for S.H.I.E.L.D. Has anyone suggested this may have come from the official handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition? His entry does mention the big G by name. I I did not know that, because I've never, I've, I've read... Some Ohatmu, but I've never seen Red Ronin's entry, so I did not realize that it actually mentioned Godzilla by name. I did not think they would be allowed to do that, given the um, you know the the you know, the licensing and the way that what Marvel wa- could and could not do with Godzilla. I'm a little surprised by that, but that is cool. I mean, I'm support. I'm sure that 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 had something to do with it. I mean, how many people learned about characters that they had never seen before just from Ohatmu, just like Robin Shag always covered on Who's Who. You learn about all these characters that maybe you've never read about them. So that's totally possible. Good catch. Uh, 
Jack continues, it was where I got the idea that Red Ronin was 100 feet 4 inches tall. Not that I remembered the exact number, but a general idea, so that I was surprised when reading Godzilla number 2 and he went eye to eye with the space needle that was set on panel to be 607 feet tall. When he went to San Francisco, I had to look up the height of the Golden Gate Bridge Towers. Some 450 feet works well with a 600-foot-tall Godzilla. Then you drop the philosophical bombshell. <laughs> the giant monsters are, quote, as big as they are. Still trying to wrap my head around that one. I mean, I'll note any height or length, but not as much interested in speed or blood type. Are there people the opposite way? Um... My my point that giant monsters are as big as they are really stems from the fact that Toho, while they did have a general idea of how big the monsters were supposed to be, and as we got into the 80s and 90s, they were much more conscious about showing the scale correctly, especially with well-known landmarks. So the monsters really were whatever size they needed to be in order to work, especially when you get into other media, like here in a comic. Um, you know, mon and, and, and the thing is that the sizes would also change based on the dub sometimes. I mean, Godzilla was, I always believed Godzilla was 400 feet tall, just from various sources that, that claimed that based on one line in one dub, that he was 400 feet tall. So, you know, it's, you want to have a dynamic visual, you know, you don't want Godzilla to be, you know, the, the space needle to tower over Godzilla necessarily. You want Godzilla to be this huge monster. But at the same time, you you know, there are a lot of otaku that love numbers. And you, you mentioned, you know, speed or blood type. You know, uh, there's, there's always an argument that Rodan should be faster than Gigan in airspeed. It's like, well, does it, what does it really matter? You know, I mean, we're really measuring this. And, and blood type. I mean, play any Japanese fighting game and you'll get all sorts of stats about a character that don't mean anything but the otaku fans really like that kind of stuff so i i get where you're coming from here to me it's i'm i'm not good with estimating height i never have been either from a real world or a fictional world standpoint and so to me it's like okay they're giant you know and whatever it looks cool and i'm willing to go with that I, sorry if i gave you any required you to do some mental calisthenics to wrap your head around the uh my my statement, it's more of the uh, Casey Stengel or uh, Dusty Rhodes school of uh, philosophy than anything else, so do with that what you will. <clears throat> Jack continues, for a full report, I compared Elliot Brown's cutaway drawing based on Trimpy's and the actual one from the comic. The human figure for scale does look larger, 119th of Ronin versus 150th. So, if Trimpy didn't just draw Rob in the control room, it looks like they've started with scaling for the late Showa era and ignored that they had upsized Godzilla themselves and post-Avengers 198-199 knocked it down to something closer to the human-sized superhumans it would face from then on. Long time since seeing Space Godzilla, forgot about the encounter in the blackness of space until you mentioned it. Signed, Jack. Uh, Jack, first off, thank you very much for the email. I always know I get an email from you. It's going to be well thought out, which is more than I can say for most of the emails I've sent in my podcast listening career. So, you know, props to you on that one. Yeah, again, and this gets back to what I was saying. You're talking about, um, you know, when Godzilla gets the horn on his nose and he would show up in Iron Man after an, uh, an Avengers and, and other mainstream Marvel comics when they couldn't call him Godzilla. He was the height that he needed to be for the story. Ultimately, this is how monsters were treated in Marvel Comics, even going back to the Atlas days. You know, you could read an Atlas story and you'd get a monster that would change height in the story, depending on, you know, what they needed for the scene to look good, what they were trying to accomplish with the human characters, whether he was interacting with a building or a piece of hardware or whatever. Um, so, 
you know, it, it, it's, it does make for kind of interesting, uh, um, research and you can say, well, look, his size clearly changed here. You know, it's a little bit different in a, in a movie because, you know, you tend to build all the sets based on the costume that you have and you tend to build all your sets to the same size, but even them is not, not necessarily accurate. You know, there are times when you have different sets and the effective scale is different for the monster, even though the monster suit would be identical, you know, the identical suit. So, and you know, what's interesting is about, I, you know, the idea of Godzilla not being as tall, being, you know, walking among buildings rather than towering above them is we saw this in the Showa or excuse me, in the Heisei era, you know, in return of Godzilla, you know, Godzilla goes from always towering over every building around him in Japan to walking through Tokyo and being, you know, smaller than the high rises. And this was part of the reason that they kept making Godzilla bigger in the Heisei films, and thus the miniatures had to continually get smaller and smaller, which meant that, you know, they, they, they were losing detail, but at the same time, so they had to add more detail in to try and make it look, uh, still appear realistic. And that was one of the, one of the motivations for killing Godzilla off and replacing him with a smaller scale replacement in Godzilla Millennium. So, but, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting discussion, but, and I, I appreciate you bringing it up because, you know, uh, you, normally, when I'm watching one of these, I just kind of turn my brain off and enjoy it. But, you know, when you step back and try and look at it from a critical eye, you do notice stuff like that. And, again, I'm, I'm uh, you know, appreciate you giving the time and effort because, I, frankly, I haven't done it. And so someone with a bit more talent in it than me did it. So thank you for that. So, everybody, thank you very much for writing in. Again, if you would like to email the show, please send an email to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Every email is appreciated. And any podcaster who tells you otherwise is not telling you the truth. I'm going to say that right now because this, as I've said many times, is a labor of love and we appreciate all the feedback that we get. So now we have to ask that inevitable question, what are we covering next time? Well, we are staying in the same general area of the Daikaiju genre, but stepping slightly uh, outside of the Godzilla series, but still at Toho. We're going to be taking a look at the original Mothra. Uh, one of the, you know, it, it's funny, Mothra, I said this back when we did the, when I covered the riff tracks of Mothra, Mothra gets forgotten sometimes because the sequel to Mothra is so beloved, which is Godzilla vs, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Godzilla vs. The Thing from 1964, that the original sometimes gets overlooked, but it is a excellent fantasy daikaiju movie and, you know, introduces one of the most popular monsters of all time in Mothra. In addition, we will also be taking a look at the next issue of Marvel Godzilla, which is number 11, promising Titan times three with the three-way dance between Godzilla, Red Ronin, and Yetrigar. Plus, of course, any news or developments on uh, the new Ultraman series, the uh, new um, you know, Godzilla King of the Monsters, Pacific Rim 2, anything like that, we'll certainly uh, have that information for you here. So, I want to thank everyone uh, for listening. I want to thank everyone for your patience as this episode took quite a while to be released. And I want to thank everybody again for downloading and listening. And until next time, keep them stomping. your guide.
King Ghidorah, take me to your leader. Quick to claim that he not no snake like me neither. They need to take a breather. He been rhyming longer than Sigmund the Sea Creature. Been on Saturday feature. Pleased to meet ya. And came to wake you up out the deep sleeper like he needed to stop before he caught the knee drop. Even give you more sick sick and ZZ top. Well, four bears thou shall not more corner. Future like one more steps in y'all's corner. So call Rich front if you wanna. When he's spitting that tricks, don't be in y'all saunas. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You could even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.